0: All right, you guys ready to get open Isaiah chapter 53 ready to dive in today talking about the transfer that took place on the cross And I shared last week the gospel is never good news until it's put on the backdrop of bad news And we don't like to hear bad news. Americans are pretty upbeat people uh, But Americans need to hear bad news as well Because we'll never appreciate what Jesus did for us until we are fully convinced uh, of our guilt before the Lord we talked about our threefold uh, guilt as rebel subjects and our sin of high treason last Sunday. I was in, of course, the first three verses of Isaiah 53. We talked about three sins. Number one, we rejected the message of Jesus. It was a message of life. It was a message straight from the heart of God with Jesus being the Messiah, the Savior, the coming King. We rejected that message. Secondly, we rejected his miracles, and it wasn't just a few miracles here and there. How many of you know there was a preponderance of evidence that God God was fully endorsing screaming endorsement of his son in fact on two occasions god literally could not contain himself and he said this is my beloved son and whom i'm well pleased i mean you know that's that's a passionate father right there and a passionate father for his son and i don't know about you guys but the, when we were singing today about who we are in Christ I am who you say I am aren't you grateful that because of the transfer that took place we've now been adopted as sons and daughters and I want you to hear the scream of your heavenly father saying over you this is my beloved son and my beloved daughter and whom I'm well pleased How I mean you know we got a new identity we are who he says he is so uh, who he, we are who he says we are, all right? That's, that's the new identity. But the miracles were a screaming endorsement from the Father because Jesus simply did things that were never ever seen or done before, and yet we still rejected him in spite of the evidence. And thirdly, and this is perhaps the greatest indictment, we rejected him personally the one who was without sin, the most beautiful human being who ever lived. Obviously, I'm not talking about external appearance. Jesus was very normal. The Bible says there's nothing about his external appearance that would have attracted us to him. But how many of you know the glory of his character was unparalleled? and to reject somebody who is sinless, even Herod, even Pilate, said they couldn't find any fault in him. These are wicked leaders. And yet as a whole, when we had the choice between choosing between Barabbas and choosing between the sinless, spotless son of God, We yelled out, give us the crook, give us the thief, give us the pervert, give us the wicked man. We rejected the person of Jesus Christ. And it says in verse 3 of Isaiah 53, we turned our backs on him and we looked the other way. He was despised and we simply didn't even care. How many of you know that paints a dreadful picture of our guiltiness before God? You know, when the Bible says we turn our backs, it's good to personalize that today. I turned my back on him. I looked the other way. He was despised. I didn't even care. Um, it was that fixed position of rejection where we don't even want to look at the person who's been rejected. The Bible says he, when he was despised, he was so despicable to us, we couldn't even look on him like somebody who was stricken with leprosy um that is a wicked indictment against all of us we all stand before the throne of god absolutely guilty and how many of you know we're in big trouble that's where we left you last week big trouble thank god for verse four aren't you glad for verse four and verse five and verse six because we're going to read those today and we're moving from the bad news into the good news we're going to talk about our sinless substitute jesus christ verse four it was for our weaknesses he carried I'm sorry, it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But look at verse 5. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. Behold, Jesus was whipped so that we could be healed. How many of you know again, I want you to see the amazement of this. Verse 5, written... Over 700 years before Jesus ever set foot on planet Earth is such a beautiful, succinct picture of the sufferings and the agony that Jesus went through on our behalf. We should stand in awe of that verse and all of us fall on our faces and embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. That verse right there is enough evidence. It's all that we need. Right there, Isaiah 53, verse 4. There's the gospel right there, right at the heart of it. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ taking our place on the cross. Look at verse 6. All of us, everybody say all of us, just to make sure I'm talking to the right crowd this morning. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. I want you to notice the word punishment in verse 4 that is attached to sin. Whenever you hear punishment attached to sin, it should tell you sin is something very serious in the eyes of God. Now, can I just tell you, we're living in a culture I shared last week. The only thing that doesn't offend Americans is sin. We get offended about everything else. But the one thing that should offend Americans is sin against God. In fact, when you see certain policies being promoted on a national level, certain policies being uh, endorsed as virtuous or whatever, and it's absolutely wicked, it should cause us to be angry and broken on the inside and have a sense of, of how, when, we, when you see this happening at the highest levels, it should drive home our guiltiness before God and the need for an American revival, a heaven-sent revival to our nation. Punishment is serious because sin is serious, and I want you to understand that the seriousness of our sin rises to the dignity of the one that's been insulted. So if you insult, for instance, a a plant, you might have some nature tree huggers out there that would be upset if you insulted a tulip or something like that, but most people would just go, get over it, dude, what's the matter with you? If you insulted an ant, most people would not care. If you insulted a dog, uh, you might have some dog lovers that would really be up in arms. Uh, How about if you took the life of a horse, animal cruelty? I mean, no, you can go to jail for that. How about this? How about crucifying God? How serious do you think that is? Well, the dignity of the, or the seriousness of the crime rises with the dignity of the one offended. How many how you know when you are worshiping a God who's infinitely awesome and glorious in every way, that our sin against Him is infinitely great? Which is why we have a place called hell, which is an infinite punishment for infinite sin against the infinitely holy God. It all makes perfect sense if God's big enough in your mind and in your heart. And that is the problem. God's not big in our mind and in our heart. And how many of you know we shared last week the failure to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Can I just ask that question? Do we have anybody in this room that from the moment they breathe their first breath, you've loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Okay, well again... We're all guilty before the Lord here this morning. We're guilty of treason. We're guilty of loving something and worshiping something other than God himself, esteeming someone or something else that's not worthy of our full esteem. We despise the Holy One. We've rejected the King of glory. We've turned our faces away in disgust. And, of course, Romans 3.23, many of us have memorized this growing up. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans six twenty three. what are the wages of sin well we know the wages of sin are death and so I'm just building the case how many of you know apart from Jesus Christ we all are under the sentence of death and there's not a one of us in this room that could scream out that we're innocent or we deserve anything but death how many of you know people have asked this question why do good thing or why do bad things happen to good people have you ever heard that question why do bad things happen to good people that is horrific theology There are no good people. There are only good people when you compare yourself with other bad people. And then you have a relative goodness. But the Bible says there's no one that seeks God. There's no one that loves God. There's no one that pursues God. No, not one. Therefore, the question we should be asking is why does anything good happen to bad people? And can I just tell you something else? The gospel was offensive when it was first preached Jesus got killed over it can I just tell you something else it hasn't changed just try saying what I just said in one of your classes in public school or public university in psychology class where everybody's a good person right everybody's good and then you raise your hand as the one Christian in class and say I'm sorry you know everybody's actually incredibly wicked and evil And then when your teacher says, prove it, just say, watch the evening news, come back and report to me, please. Um, If there's anything that's been fully established, it's the full depravity of human beings apart from Jesus. How many of you, I'm telling you the truth, raise your hand, I'm speaking the truth. On your best day, you're still selfish. On your best day, you still have a tendency to rebel against God. On your best day, you still love other things more than you love Jesus. On your best day, you have a hard time controlling your wicked human fallen nature, dealing with anger, impatience. This is why we have marriage class. This is why we're renovating you. This is why every week we come and say, Jesus, help me. Because on our best day in Christ, we still struggle with our past. On your best day apart from Christ... You are wicked, selfish, treasonous, rebel before God, and fully worthy of His divine justice. And you don't ever want to stand before God in that situation. That's a terrible place, which leads us to verse 5. Hallelujah for verse 5. He was pierced for my rebellion. Jesus was crushed for our sins. Jesus was beaten so that I could be whole. Jesus was whipped. So that we could be healed. Right here, verse 5, we encounter the very heart of the gospel message. And here's the message. The innocent suffering servant, Jesus, taking our place, giving his life as a sacrifice for sin. He could have brought us justice because how many of you know he's a just God? And I want you to to revel in the justice of God. Sometimes the only thing that gets me by the tragedy and injustice in this world is knowing that Jesus Christ is going to return and judge the living and the dead. Everything will be brought to light. Every wrong thing will be made right. Every hidden thing will be exposed. Hallelujah! There's going to be justice in the world. But aren't you grateful the last time we should ever be saying, God, I demand justice, Is you standing before a holy God? Because you know what? Thank God he didn't give us justice. It's called hell. And I just got to say this. There are many Christians that run from the doctrine of hell. You know, hell is just so inconsistent with a loving God. Well, if you run from hell, I warn you. If you run from the biblical conception of hell, you're running from Jesus. Because Jesus talked about hell more than anybody in the Bible. And so if you don't like the part about heaven, you can't pick the part about hell and throw it away and just choose heaven. You can't do it. They're kind of two sides of the same coin. And many people today, it's unfashionable to preach about an eternal suffering. But I want to ask you this question. When you sin against an eternally glorious God, it makes perfect sense that your suffering would match your sin. A sin against an infinitely perfect, holy, righteous God we sang about today. Holy, 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 didn't we sing that this morning? Holy, holy, a million faces fall on the ground singing one thing, holy, holy, holy. Why is that what comes out of angels right now in heaven and redeemed human beings? Because there's something about being in the presence of God that demands that type of a response. How much more for those who continue to shake their fist at God and reject God and turn their backs on God and love other things and t- basically trample the the name and the beauty and the reputation of God through the mud that's why there's a place called hell now the good news is that's not God's will for any of you that's not the heart of God for any of you what does God say instead well the bible declares and we all know this verse John 3:16 for this is how God loved the world he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish have eternal life and God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him I don't have this on the screen but if you drop down to verse 36 it brings the balance to verse 16 anyone who believes in God's son has eternal life can anybody shout hallelujah on that one Anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life but remains under God's angry judgment. You say, well, it's not fashionable for God to be angry. No. Anger is the righteous response to a God who loves His own glory and reputation and who loves you, people made in His image and likeness. The reason God hates sin is And judges sin with such a ferocious judgment is because sin is an attack on His throne and it's an attack on your happiness. I want you to think about this for a minute. Sin destroys the relationship you were made to have with God. Sin destroys every pleasure you were made to properly enjoy. Sin destroys the ultimate relationship that God created you to enjoy, which is a relationship with Himself forever. And the Bible says this, in fact, God calls us to the same standard. He says, you need to hate what's evil, and you need to love what is good. Is that not what the Bible declares? Hate what is evil. Now, we always talk about, and we rightfully should, separating the sinner from the sin, but can I just be real clear with us? There should be a hatred in our hearts for what is evil. We should run the opposite direction. I share with you the testimony last week of the man that had been free from alcohol addiction for several years of his life now. And when that temptation came near, boom, he ran the other direction. Why? Hate what is evil and love what is good. Run towards what is good. Embrace what is good. Get an appetite for what's good and run the opposite direction of anything with the sniff of evil on it. Why? Because that's the way God treats evil. He hates it and he's going to judge it. In fact, the Bible says, and this is kind of heavy, Ephesians 2, 3, by nature, we are children of wrath. This means we come into the world not as children of God. We're all part of one big family, right? No, that's humanism. We come in as children under the sentence of the wrath of God. This should put the fear of God in all of us right from the get-go. We're not just all part of one big family sing kumbaya, pass the Coca-Cola while we all drink to the glory of humanity. No! We might start off all as one big cosmic family, all sinners separated from God, all sinners on the way to hell, all sinners under the sentence of God's righteous wrath because sin belittles the holiness of God. And I just want to share this with you. You know, people emphasize or overemphasize the love of God. Thank God the Bible says God is love, 1 John 4.8. The Bible doesn't say God is wrath. God is love, praise the Lord. But wrath and love go hand in hand because wrath is, an, is a loving expression by the heart of God. Destroying everything that's ultimately going to destroy your happiness and His glory. And that's so important for God to act in that way. I just want to say this loudly and clearly. Some people say, well, you know, some people picture God like a doting father, a grandfather. Here's the way it works. I'm sitting down. I got Joel and Carly over, and they got little Capri. Now, she's too little for this, but let's say she gets a little bit bigger. And Grandma serves peas and little Capri. She's not eating those peas. And so Daddy steps in. Right, Joel, come on, help me out. Daddy steps in because he was raised correctly. Eat the peas. Although Joel might have regurgitated a few and put them in the drawer and closed it, you know, like I told you last week. Some of those little surprises we found, the little Petri dish things growing in our kitchen table. But let's just say Joel says to Capri, Capri, you're not getting up until you eat these peas. And then Grandma, Nana, comes along. Oh, honey, you don't need to eat those peas. You just you don't need to eat those peas here. You just get down and go play. That's okay. You're at grandma's house. Let me just tell you, God is not grandma. Thank God God is not grandma. Because God is a righteous judge. And I want you to see the beauty of the gospel. It's actually genius. That's why human beings never created this. It's too spectacular for human beings. We said God is love. Picture a triangle. God is love. But God is also holy and just, and God is also God of truth, which means his holiness and his justice and his truth will not allow him to sweep your sins and mine under the carpet and pretend like they don't exist. But the love of God, the love of God is not content that his justice and holiness be served, and that we get lost in the process. So how does God maintain the fact that he's love? but not compromise his holiness and justice and never fudge on the truth because that's a core part of who God is. How does he solve the problem? How does God save sinful, broken people who are living as rebel traitors and do so in such a way that doesn't sweep justice under the rug, doesn't sweep truth under the rug, or doesn't pretend like holiness doesn't matter or that the multitude of our sins against his glory don't matter to him? How does he solve that problem? That has been the beauty of the atonement, which is what we're talking about today. Jesus had no sin of his own. So it was not his own penalty that he bore. But he was my substitute and he was your substitute. And all of my sin and all of your sin was transferred on Jesus on the cross. I want you to notice when we read this, these th- th- three verses, nine times, the plural pronouns that are coming out, nine times, our weaknesses, our sorrows, our rebellions, our sins, our weaknesses, our sorrow, our rebellion, our sins, all of our combined sin, Jesus took upon himself. The Bible says in Romans 3, verse 25, God put Christ forward as a propitiation. A great theological word there, it's pregnant with meaning, propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. I need to point your attention to something. We do a great job of messing up the gospel by making ourselves the center of the cross. We say, well, Jesus came and died for you and me, and that is absolutely true. But that is not the first point that we need to hit. The first point is simply this. For centuries, as long as there's been human beings on planet Earth, people have sinned against God. Amen? Amen. That sin has largely gone unpunished. People have never paid the price for that sin. God has looked over it, so to speak, looking forward to a day when He would fully deal with all the insults. Now, I don't know about you, but I only got in a fistfight one time, and the reason that I got in the fistfight was somebody insulted repeatedly my father. I told him to stop. He was ignorant. I made him pay. All right. They insulted my father. Can you understand what it's like for millennia of people who insult? God and trample his glory over and over and over again. And how many of you know God's anger and his wrath is not something that goes off as a trigger? He's not a bad dad. The Bible says, even now, he is long suffering with sinners, not wanting any to perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of the Son of God and be saved. God is waiting even now. He's dealing with our insults every day, even now. He's taking it. He's taking it. He's taking it. Jesus said he could have called 10,000 angels from the cross and been rescued and paid the price. But he took it, because how many of you know sometimes it takes more glory and more grace and and more beauty character-wise to endure an insult than to respond to an insult. But the point is this. Jesus was the first human being who perfectly lived to please his heavenly Father. All of us failed and failed miserably. But Jesus did it perfectly, and I want you to see this. Look at his prayers. Look at his life. Look at his communication with the Father. There's not one moment he was not fully aware that he was existing as a son filled with the Spirit to be about his Father's business and that the one thing he lived for was that God's name and glory and reputation would forever be praised. He lived for the glory of his Father, and listen, he did it perfectly. Perfect obedience to God. So he becomes our propitiation. What is a propitiation? It is a sacrifice that bears the wrath of God so that God becomes propitious or favorably disposed towards us. In other words, it's if my son and I are having a bad relational conflict and all of a sudden we have reconciliation and I'm able to look at Jason and, and where we once had this huge offense, we're now able to hug. And where once was, I was looking at him with a frown and anger, I'm now looking at him with the biggest smile. Meaning whatever was the reason for the offense has been washed away and now we can fully come together and embrace. That's what God does through Jesus Christ. He removes the wrath and the judgment so that God can look at you with a smile on his face. That's why you're loved. That's why you're accepted. That's why you're a son or you're a daughter. That's why you come here. I don't care what kind of week you had. What's God think about me? He's crazy about you. Because the son has removed all offense. The son has fully paid the price for your sin. Look at First John verse 4, verse chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And that he sent his son, Jesus, to be the propitiation for our sin. Here's the point of propitiation. At the cross, Jesus didn't just divert the judgment of God. Jesus absorbed it. Jesus took it fully upon himself. We're going to get into that on Good Friday. Because here's the point. Sin matters. Justice matters. Truth matters. Jesus had to fully embrace the full wrath of God that was meant for you and I, even so much so that God had to literally turn his head, and Jesus cries out, my Father, why have you forsaken me in agony? Yes. Even the Father looks away because of the full weight of the sentence poured out upon the Son. Jesus is the one who is receiving in our stead... The wrath of God. Now, we were talking yesterday in our family. I think this happened one time. Caroline's home from college, which I'm excited about. Her dad's so happy. And uh, Caroline was sharing a story when little Alicia, where I think Alicia, there's Alicia in the back. Alicia, you're such a Jesus figure this morning. It's so good. I'm getting ready to spank Caroline for her sin, all right? Justice is coming from Father. Alicia, in a moment of compassion, which I'm not sure has ever emerged since, um, Alicia, no, I'm kidding, if you know anything, that was an inside joke about the history of my two daughters there, but Alicia says, Daddy, don't spank her, spank me. Well, of course, I did not do that, but I was very, appreciated the gesture. Now, bend over, Caroline. All right, there you go. Um, how many of you know when we're getting ready for judgment to be decreed over us, Jesus comes running forward? And Jesus gets nailed to a cross, and Jesus gets beaten beyond recognition. And Jesus truly, in a way no other person could do it, takes upon himself the sin of the world. Now, when we're teaching on Christology and the roar, I love to do this. If you picture the top part of the cross being God, the bottom part of the cross being humanity, separated here by sin... We have this massive problem. How does God connect with human beings and bring them into relationship with himself in a way that we were intended to enjoy God and for God to enjoy us forever? How does that happen when you got sin here that separates us? How does God get reconciled with man? Well, this is the beauty of it. If you could put right here another square divided in half with God on the top and man on the bottom, you would have the God-man Jesus Christ. Only God... Could walk a sinful, I mean, a sinless life before us. We needed somebody that was perfect in every way. But we needed a human being to take the place of humanity. There needed to be a perfect lamb slain before the foundation of the world to identify with your sin and mine. We needed God to reconcile man, needed the God man, Jesus Christ. Jesus takes our place on the cross and he becomes the propitiation for our sin. In fact, look at what the Bible says lastly here in verse 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him, on Jesus, the sins of us all. Here's the problem. I mean, you know, every one of us is a rebellious sheep who strayed away. Any of you think of your BC days when you were out doing your own thing, being stupid and rebellious and far from God? and screwing up your life. Anybody remember those days when you were addicted? You were selfish. You didn't treat people right. You pouted all the time. Uh, I mean, everybody know what I'm talking about? That Remember that person? Yeah, that one that was doing it my way. I'm going to do it my way. I don't need God. I don't need church. I don't need that religious stuff. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to go take on the world. Remember that person that ended up in the ditch? Ended up a mess. Ended up addicted. Ended up with a trail of destroyed relationships. Everybody remember that person? Yeah. All of us, like rebellious sheep, have gone our own way. And I can just hear the father. You know, I've had this thought with, with the different pets that I've owned. If only I could have an obedient pet. Now, we never did go to obedience school. That might have been the first problem. But I've known, I, I've had some pets that would fail Obedience school, I promise you, they'd be the F dog in obedience school. (laughs) Even this last week, I say to my dog, come! And he goes, come! (laughs) I use his formal name and middle name like parents do. Come! Then I ring the treat. Ding, 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 ding! Come! Oh, that makes him come. (laughs) Then he comes after the treat. In my heart, I'm going, one of these days, I'm going to have a dog that will obey the first time. <laughs> I won't have to bribe them, threaten them, beat them, or give them a treat. Now, I have this thought that God sits in the heavens and says, will I ever find a son or a daughter that will just listen and trust me and love me and obey me? Thank God. Thank God. For a lamb, only one. In fact, this is what John says. John the Baptist, John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look, go back in verse 4 to our passage in Isaiah 53. The Bible says, surely he has borne our griefs. King James Version, born our griefs. That word born is the Hebrew word nasa, which means to carry or take away. It means to endure something unpleasant in the case of or on the behalf of others. In other words, the whole idea here is substitution. And you remember, this is the direct connection between Isaiah 53 all the way back to Leviticus chapter 16. The Day of Atonement, some of you have heard this before, it's a powerful picture. On the Day of Atonement, the priest would get two uh, spotless uh, goats. He would draw a, a lot. The goat that lost would be taken in and would be sacrificed. All the people, all of Israel gathered together, okay? That goat was taken in and slaughtered. That goat's blood was shed to cover the sin of all the people. The other goat, when the priest came out from offering that sacrifice, again standing in front of all the people, the Bible says he laid his hands on the head of the goat. And he pronounced all the rebellion, all the wickedness, all the sin of all the people. In other words, he laid it out there. I don't know how long that took, but he confessed all all the sin he laid it on that goat's head and then this is a beautiful picture of what jesus did for us because jesus was the was the picture of the goat that was sacrificed for our sin but he also is the goat upon whom all of our sins were laid that priest laid his hands and then here's the cool thing that goat was led off into the wilderness the people literally watched that goat until it disappeared out of their sight. What was the picture here? God saying, I'm going to separate your sin as far as the east is from the west. I, I will remove your sin from you. You'll not be able to see it. It will be gone. The problem was this happened once a year. And how many of you know it was probably the very next day or that evening they needed a fresh goat to cover their sin. But once a year, they got a picture of what was coming. They got a picture of what we enjoy. How many of you know when Jesus went to the cross, God the Father laid his hands on that lamb's head and he pronounced the sin of the world on the lamb of God? And that lamb was sacrificed. And some people say, well, you know, the God of the Old Testament, he seems real mean, but then you get to Jesus and God gets nice, you know, like God's schizophrenic or something like that, multiple person. No, how many of you know same the same God? So love the world that he comes and becomes the sacrifice for us. He's the high priest who's laying the hands. He's also the sacrifice that's receiving. He's all the same person. He's the sacrificer and the sacrifice he. It's the love of God that moved Jesus to the cross. It's the love of God that poured out his wrath on his own son, to pay for your sin and for my sin. It's the love of God. It's the same Father who's wooing and drawing. It's the love of God that, that says to us now, you know what, you don't have to live in guilt and shame because somebody else has taken all of that punishment on themselves. You're free. You don't have to hang your head. You can live free. In fact, one of the greatest verses in the whole Bible, in fact, one of my favorites, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For God made Christ who never sinned, to be the offering or propitiation for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Jesus Christ. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we would inherit his righteousness. So that's why, again, that the, I appreciate our worship team and the selection of the music this morning because we started off by declaring a powerful truth. We gave up our sin and we took upon ourselves the perfect life of Jesus. So we're sons and we're daughters here this morning. We don't have to hang our head in shame. We don't have to feel like we're under a burden of guilt. We don't have to keep fighting to try to be good enough with God. Some of you are on this religious treadmill. You're trying to work your way to be good enough so that God will love you and accept you. The good news is God loves and accepts Jesus. The resurrection is the final proof that God fully accepted the sacrifice of his son for your sin. That's why it's the greatest day in human history. Um, That's why we celebrate and we go big, all right? Next Sunday, we're going big. We're moving from the tears to the triumph uh, and the celebration. You are moving in the righteousness of God. The reason Jesus, some people ask, why didn't Jesus just come right away and go straight to the cross? This is important. Jesus lived a perfect life for roughly 33 years. All of his perfection and obedience was building up an account called righteousness. And his 33 years of perfect life go into your bank account. Forgiveness means your bank account is now gone from overdraft and in debt to zero. That's called forgiveness. But zero is still not that great. It's better than indebtedness. Zero is great, but righteousness is greater. Righteousness means all of Jesus' perfect life gets deposited in your account. And Jesus is filthy rich, infinitely rich, which means you'll never have a need for anything again in your life. You're not only forgiven, but you're righteous because of Jesus. So we stand here this morning on the common ground at the foot of the cross as sinners. But we're not sinners any longer if you're in Christ. You're saints. You're forgiven. We still remember from whence we came, and that's why we worship and we give thanks. But how many of you know our focus now is on moving in the righteousness of Christ and loving God with all of our hearts and being the people God created us to be and living for the glory of God that's why I love that old hymn we sang today, a little remake, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, on which the Prince of Glory died. And we talk about what our response to that should be. We give our very lives, ourselves, our all. That's the response. That's called discipleship. That's called what it means to be really born again. It's the giving of yourself to the Lord. And let me end with this verse right here, First Peter 3.18. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time he never sinned but he died for sinners and this is the grand finale all right why did he die for sinners to bring you safely home to god you know there's been folks that have come back to living stones uh, after a period of time or they come to living stones for first time and what i love to say to them is welcome home our missionaries come off the field Welcome home. There's something powerful about being home. And you know what? Ever since Eden, we're trying to get home. And uh, and home is one place. Home is in the Father's embrace. Home is in the Father's embrace. There's going to be a time coming when God is going to look at you and he's going to say, welcome home. In fact, I believe he's going to not only be able to say, welcome home, I believe he's going to be standing there. His name's Jesus. And while while we get embarrassed about our scars, we do everything to try to get rid of our scars. Jesus is proud of them. He's so proud of them that his glorified body comes with scars. Comes with holes. Because I really think there's gonna be something about coming and fully embracing and having can you imagine when the Lord hugs you? Jesus said, when you look into my face, you look into the face of my Father. I'm glad that God also has arms and a lap and a smile and eyes and ears and a nose and a face full of muscles that create all kinds of emotion, express all kinds of emotion. Because you know what? You're going to be able to see the smile of God in the face of Jesus. Through the scars that are yours and mine, through hands that are going to reach out and hold you, and arms that are going to embrace you. See, some of you wonder, why is this church such a hugging church? We're getting you ready. (laughs) We're getting you ready. No one's going to come there and go, hey, thanks, Jesus. This intimacy thing gets a little too much for me, but I know we got a long time to figure it out, so I'll catch up to you later. No, 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 no. How many of you know you're going to be fully made free and whole and healed to embrace the son? And you're going to hear him say, welcome welcome home. Welcome to dad's house. Now let's let the party start, all right? Let's let the party start. All right, hop to your feet, to your feet. Thank you, Lord. Please hear the Father's heart right now, because I feel it there's some of you that are just longing to come home, longing for freedom. Maybe you're you're, you're like Greg in that testimony about depression and discouragement, and whatever. I just want to encourage you, don't leave here today without the full measure of the cross being released over your life. Why do we pray for the sick? Because Jesus was whipped and beaten for our healing, not just our healing from the effects of sin but from the healing of the brokenness in our bodies we want to pray for sick people today because we believe in the power of the cross we want to pray for lost people today because we believe jesus is waiting like the prodigal son's father to welcome you home and to to run to you to meet you so if you don't know the lord today we want to pray for you in fact in our overflow room we've got a whole team of people that'll take all the time that you need personal attention to pray with you and to love on you and to help you, all right? So don't leave without responding. If you don't know Jesus today, please come on down here. There's going to be people that will pray with you, all right? But let's commit ourselves to the Lord right now. Father, we just respond to this amazing substitutionary act that came from your heart to set us free and to bring us back to you. We honor you, Jesus, for your great love. And Holy Spirit, we ask you now to make the full impact of our new covenant, alive in our hearts. We want to love Jesus the way He's worthy of our affection. God, we want to love You the way You're worthy of our affection. And Lord, we want to bring our sin to You. Even today, we lay it at Your feet. We ask that the blood of Christ would be applied even now, at this very moment where we failed You, Lord. But we thank You, God, that You're smiling and that Your affection for us is great. Your love for us is great. You're never going to quit on us. You're never going to leave us, never forsake us. So we thank you for our covenant. We love you, Jesus. We just want to kiss back this morning. We want to tell you from the bottom of our heart, we love you. We ask you to bless us this week. Lord, may Friday and Saturday be powerful times of celebration. And God, may... Unsafe friends and neighbors come and may they find you if not here at living stones and the variety of amazing churches lord that are around this community we ask a blessing on the body of christ on the church of jesus christ may our churches be full may people be running to meet jesus in this season we give you the glory and the honor now in jesus mighty name and everybody said amen amen